Cineal It. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh and this episode we delve into the rich world of East Asian cinema with Derby Quad's programmer of East Asian cinema, Peter Munford. Uh, as ever, these podcasts are made possible by the kind support of Quad and BFI and I have a lot of fun talking to Peter about the five plus two films that he selected to talk about. It certainly made me want to go on a Jackie Chan binge watching session. I hope you enjoy it too. Hello, welcome to CineLit. Unfortunately for all you Daryl Buxton fans out there, Daryl is away on assignment this week. But he'll be back in the future, uh, near future, I'm certain. So today has given me the opportunity to speak to someone I've wanted to bring on the podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Peter Mumford, uh, programmer of Quad's East Asian Cinema Night, Satori Screen. Hello, Peter. How are you? Hello, Adam. I'm okay, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very, very good. Looking forward to this uh, wide-ranging discussion on reasons why you love East Asian cinema. So you've been programming uh, Satori Screen at Quad for six years, seven years? Uh, It's eight in October, I think, 2012 started. Goodness me. So that's that's quite a lot of films, and we've been hitting a monthly schedule ever since we started, really. Yeah, up until March, when... And other import from East Asia that we didn't really want. <laughs> long. Um, yeah, eight years, nearly. Eight years of, of, of a, a range of films, and we've shown quite an eclectic mix of stuff. What, what are the ones that stand out for you as ones that you pleased that we got the opportunity to screen? The ones that I'm glad we've screened mostly are the ones that people wouldn't have been able to see any other way. Like very early on, we managed to get a 35mm print of a film from North Korea. So it's a film called So Me the Taekwondo Woman through a weird series of events where this film had been made by a Japanese producer in North Korea with North Korean cast and crew. And he created one English subtitle 35mm print with the intention of trying to sell it around the world. This is the late 80s. And then he totally failed to sell it. And this print had just been on a shelf in Japan for... 30 years until a Japanese writer, no, sorry, Japanese cinema writer, Jasper Sharp, discovered it and brought it over to the UK. And we it played at Quad and maybe three or four other venues. And that's the only times it's ever been seen outside of Asia. So that was a really exciting one. Chance to see some North Korean cinema is not something that travels normally no no, certainly not outside the boundaries of north korea yeah so that's memorable yeah that was impressive well it wasn't an impressive film it was it was definitely a curiosity to watch um how great a film was it it wasn't an amazing film it's not it's not one where i'm like oh it's such a shame that no one's ever else is ever going to get to see that film because it's a forgotten masterwork but it was just interesting in many ways because it was a martial arts film and you could see they were lifting from various things in hong kong cinema and stuff but at the same time, you kind of got little insights into North Korean society from it, things like that. The horses in it were all skinny. That's what I remember. All these horses where you could just see their ribs through things like that, show you how the differences and things like that. And um, If skinny horses are your thing, uh, yeah. some of the Taekwondo woman is the one for you. Yeah, because I, I only ever got to see it once as well, and it was nearly eight years ago, so I don't remember it with absolute clarity. I remember it being very the lead character being very emotional and told me the Taekwondo woman, so it was a female lead who was trying to gain vengeance and for her lost love and her shouting, Yungam! a lot in a very overwrought way, which became a little catchphrase for a few weeks amongst me and the people that saw it at Quad. So that was a memorable one. And then just things like when I've managed to persuade um, an audience to turn up for things that they've never heard of, but I know I'll have fun with, like a film I plan to talk to you a bit more in detail later, like Lady Terminator, which was a film I'd been talking to anyone who'd listened to for years, saying there's this insane film from Indonesia called Lady Terminator, you've got to watch it. It's kind of terrible, but you'll never forget it. 
and sure, managed to get an audience to turn up and it went down a storm and, and have people still occasionally see me in quadlation and say, Lady Terminator, though, I'll never forget that. Should we, should we move on to Lady Terminator then? Because that's that uh, seems like a good place to start. You're a big film fan in general, Pete. In general, but you like you like quality films. Uh, why Lady Terminator then? Because it's a mess. Yes. And I'm being kind there. It's a mess, isn't it? Shall I do a little uh, plot synopsis for those that have no idea what you this can. is? I mean, I'm, I've seen the film and I'm not sure I can do a plot synopsis. An anthropologist doing research in Indonesia relaxes with a dip in the sea and suddenly finds herself possessed by the spirit of the country's mythical South Sea Queen. Upon returning to land, she is somehow transformed into the Lady Terminator and sets out on a mission of revenge against the descendants of those that wronged the South Sea Queen. Armed with an AK-47, she blazes a trail across the streets of Jakarta, and it's up to the local cops to find a seemingly invincible Lady Terminator down. It's a Terminator rip-off. There's no two ways about it. It lifts the plot. It lifts entire scenes in places where there's things that you'll remember from the Terminator, the scene where Arnie takes his eye out and the lap gets pretty much stolen. Uh, what else? The nightclub scene was very... The nightclub at Tech Noir yes. in, in Terminator was, is almost lifted and completely in, yes. in this movie as well. But, but James Cameron didn't have the balls to do an entire song performed on stage and stop the film for a three-minute song performance. So uh, No, well, it's, it's just not a very experimental filmmaker, is it? That's the, that's the thing, you know. Things like, uh, it just takes things that bit further, like in The Terminator when Arnie appears and he meets the two punks, one of the Bill Paxton and the other guy, and they have a little interaction and he kills them. In Lady Terminator, she has sex with them, then kills them. Just always taking things to that little next level. There's that. a lot. There's a lot of. There's a lot of eighties attitudes towards towards. If she's a woman, therefore she's got to have sex with practically every character she meets in this movie. It starts off with a sex scene, two sex scenes, I believe, where she kills both men, and then yeah, she's wronged by the man who he doesn't kill, and that's her being wronged by not getting the opportunity to kill him. Yes. Well, but she does get her revenge on men, mankind generally in this film. There's a very memorable moment later in the film during the, again lifted from the Terminator, the police station assault sequence where she unloads pretty much a whole clip from her gun into a man's chest and then kicks him in the balls for good measure once he's clearly very, very dead, which always gets a big laugh. And this film's got um, some amazing dialogue. And the one that's the one that, the one that really stood out to me, it's not, it's not particularly memorable, but it's just the early bits where she's on the boat and the, and the boat captain's being um, horrible and, 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 and misogynistic. And the woman, and then the, the anthropologist goes, I'm not a lady, I'm an anthropologist. Yes, that's kind of become, that's kind of one of the things this film is known for. <laughs> it should be said as well that this this film was shot in Indonesia, but all the most of the main roles are played by white people who it seems they just grabbed off the street because they, I don't know, it was a thing in the 80s for Asian cinema that was hoping to get seen outside Asia. Then we better put white people in it then, and but they can't afford to import actors. So the, the, the lead cop is a white man for some reason working in the Indonesian police department. But at the same time, they're trying to fudge it. So maybe it's not Indonesia. Maybe it's set in the States. It's really set in this kind of half Asia, half US milieu. They've got like stock shots of American cities at night and opening scenes and things like that. All that stuff like that I love where just filmmakers are just trying to reach beyond their grasp. And I think it's a wonderful film. And this film played in American cinemas. I'm stunned that it didn't get sued because Cameron's quite litigious. But at the same time, Harlan Ellison had to take out a lawsuit against James Cameron for elements sure. of the term. Yeah, so maybe he thought that would be hypocritical to then. 
or maybe he wasn't aware of it for a decade afterwards who knows but yeah because this one got this one got it got a release but obviously it, it, it gained in popularity in the last 10 years or so hasn't it with various different cult screenings yeah so it got an american dvd in about mid to uh, 2004 2005 or something like that which is where i first saw it yeah and I'm, I'm waiting for the blu-ray now i need this film in pristine clarity this was this was released by um mondo macabre yes mondo got an excellent company that turns up many weird and wonderful for the world that would be very difficult to see otherwise i think it was one of those movies that came to came to the fore through um the book mondo macabre pete tombs yes excellent uh, book on weird and wonderful cinema yeah and um back in the early 2000s do you remember four later which was a thing on channel four where they had like a strand of late night programming with like bits the video game show and vids the video shop show yeah and i think off the back of that book there was a show called i think it was called mondo macabre where they went and interviewed lots of these filmmakers around the world and i think they, the Indonesia was one of those and they went and found the director of this film and talked to him and his name's he's credited as Jalil Jackson but apparently in, in Indonesia he goes by H. Chut Jalil because he did Mystics in Bali as well didn't he which is also very entertaining but a little bit more competent so probably not quite as good if you follow my meaning a so. little bit more competent which means what well, I don't even know what that means after seeing Lady Terminator you don't see boom mics in the show <laughs> Yeah, just in terms of uh, having the words coming out of people's mouths, people's mouths sounding like actual sentences that people might say. You know, like, there's a wonderful sequence in uh, Mystics in Bali where there's a car chase, where the car being chased, the two guys in this in it are having an argument, and one of them just starts punching the other one in the face whilst they're being pursued by the police, which makes me laugh a lot. It's not quite as insane as Lady Seven. Definitely, definitely worth seeing. I also remember in Mystics in Bali, there's a wonderful, where Lady Terminator stops for a song for three minutes, Mystics in Bali stops for a bikini fashion show. This is a three, four minute sequence where the main character and two of her friends try on a load of bikinis and pose for, which not something you see in 2020, really. It's the Indonesian equivalent of a three minute shower scene. Yeah, so it's kind of sexy, but also a bit chaste because Indonesia's got quite strict uh, censorship laws. Apparently, Lady Terminator was banned in Indonesia, but not when it had already been out for about 10 days. Someone saw it and saw, hang on a minute, that it's probably quite unknown itself in Indonesia. It's probably better known amongst film geeks in the West than it is in Indonesia. All right, well, let's move on to uh, one of your next choices. I think um, being known in the West might be a nice little link to move us on to, um, arguably, at one point it was described as the most recognisable film star in the world, Jackie Chan. Yeah, probably something to do with his films being action-packed films where you can watch them and get something out of them, even if the dialogue's not... You don't really need to understand what's being said. You just need to say, oh, Jackie's the good guy, there's some bad guys, they're now going to do some incredibly creative fight choreography for the next 10 minutes that's going to be very exciting. Yeah, so even in countries where they hadn't bothered to dub or do the subtitles, people would still be watching these films on VHS and stuff in the 80s, I'm sure. Yeah, the film I chose is Drunken Master. plays Wong Fei Rong, an unruly teenager who's been resisting his father's attempts to teach him Kung Fu. In desperation, his father sends him to live with his uncle, who is a master of the notorious drunken Kung Fu style and also notorious for his cruelty to his students. Once again, Wong Fei Hong tries to get out of it but when he finds himself beaten up by an assassin who has take, been taken out, to, who has taken out a contract on his father's life, 
he gains a newfound respect for his training in order to gain revenge. So this was 1978. And so Jackie Chan at this point had been about the Hong Kong cinema scene for a few years, working as a stuntman, doing things like he's in Enter the Dragon for one sequence where Bruce Lee kicks him out of into doesn't kicks him and Jackie Chan does a massive fall out of a gar, into a garden from a great height. And he'd done a few films. Um, he'd been signed up by a film director called Lo Wei, who was quite big in Hong Kong in the 70s, at the point when, because Bruce Lee had died after Enter the Dragon, and it was the search for the new Bruce Lee, who was going to be the new big martial arts star. And Lo Wei thought maybe it could be Jackie Chan. And he put him in a three or four films, which were very much patterned after the Bruce Lee films, which are kind of very serious, the kind of scowling hero, no sense of humour at all. And those films had done terribly at that point. <laughs> and it was kind of like Jackie Chan, box office poison. But Low Way still had him on this contract and he had to find something to do for him. So he actually decided to take a fee from another company to lend Jackie Chan to them for two films in 1978. The first was Snake in the Eagle's Shadow and then later in the year Drunken Master. These films are kind of what broke Jackie Chan as a star because they, they actually treated his him very differently he's allowed to show his sense of humor allowed to be much more charming on screen and just generally a bit silly his own personality was able to come through a lot more and that's kind of what launched Jackie Chan's stardom so Snake in the Eagle's Shadow was directed by Yoon Woo Ping who's now famous internationally after um, things like he did this fight choreography for Matrix Trilogy and uh, Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon but he directed this film it was his first Snake in the Eagle's Shadow was his first film as a director and Drunken Master his second. And I find these films a lot more fun just because Joker Minute and Jackie Chan's able to just let it be fun rather than trying to be this big tough guy. Because uh, the difference between Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee is if Bruce Lee finds himself surrounded by kind of six or eight guys, he will take them all on, no trouble at all, they're gone. Jackie Chan finds himself in that situation, he'll run away. Which So I guess Jackie Chan's a little bit more relatable in that sense had had there been a sort of like strand of like comedy kung fu in hong kong cinema prior to jackie chan so it feel it does feel like he found his his niche and he would spent like you say he'd spent many years trying to find knocking around done a, a film with john woo at the start of yeah. john woo's career he'd you know he'd, he'd been around for a while in like and, and doing a lot of small roles and stunt roles and extra roles but he came to the fore with the with these comedy roles and you think about the bigger stars from the previous yeah bruce lee yeah jimmy wang yu who again was very serious in his his persona had you had that comedy kung fu before i think you had had comedy kung fu films but i think it was after years of bruce lee and stuff like that when the films were art series and people suddenly realized they were they could do something different with it and the audience was ready for it and jackie chan was in prime position to take advantage of that as, as enormously talented as Jackie Chan is as a martial artist, he's not a physically imposing person. In terms, of, he's not particularly tall. He's not broad-shouldered. He could he could definitely beat you up, but that's you wouldn't if you just saw him in the street, you would not think, oh, he looks a bit scary. Most most people could beat me up though, Pete. So I, I don't really a, a bar to hurdle over. I think Jackie Chan was able to bring all this wonderful choreography and the likeness of touch that maybe was missing at least in the big 
Hong Kong films for a while before that. I'm, I won't claim to be an expert in the history of Hong Kong cinema. I'm sure there'll be people saying, but what about this film in 1973? Well, I guess it's more about building building the star around the comedy kung fu. You can probably have... I don't feel like there was a, a star that had taken that route. Yeah. Style of films before Jackie Chan, where it was like, it was, it was comedy, but it was also, it was an action film. It was packed with kung fu. I mean, there's fight, fight a minute in this film. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, they, they fight more than they talk in this film, even though they talk quite a lot. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So it, it does feel like they crystallise into, into his persona in, in these two movies. Very cleverly built as a showcase for his skill set, I guess. The uncle character as well, who's he's played, he's portrayed as an elderly man. He's probably played by, he's played by Yoon Ping's father, actually. Yeah, yeah, I read yeah. that. And he's kind of made up to be in his 70s, but he's probably only 50 at the point making this. And he's still really nimble, got all the skills and stuff. And the the, the interplay between them when they're doing all the stuff with like the teapots and things, it's kind of like you can't let the teapot hit the floor and things like that. Kind of delightful how they managed to... There is a kind of a high-stakes plot in the film, but it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> no, it's, it's more built around the tropes of the training and, and, and the unruly pupil. And, and it, it's, it's more built around that than it is around um, that, that, you say, the high-stakes plot. Yeah, but at the same time, there's a really great villain. Um, Thunderfoot. Yeah, played by Huang Jiang Li, who was a real-life Taekwondo master from South Korea. And he's got this, because it's, it's a very big contrast of styles, because he's Taekwondo, so he's all high kicks and flying jumps and stuff compared with Jackie Chan, kind of this drunken style where he's just basically, it's all about fluid movements in his body. And there's a very different style and the contrast is really great, I think. And it's a final battle and it's great between the two of them. If you want to get started with martial arts cinema, I think it's a great entry point just because it's a fun film. The plot's very simple. You don't really need to pay that much attention to it. The plot was borrowed for uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, of course, uh, 20 years later. Is my contention. It's about an unruly young man who's sent to live with his uncle to sort him out. I must admit, I didn't see the the, the massive amount of parallels with that in, in the in the in the, the the quite trope of sending an unruly student away to to learn manners. <laughs> but yes, now you mention it, it is exactly like Fresh Prince yeah. of Bel Air. Fresh Prince of Bel Air added more kind of Carlton dancing to Tom Jones. I remember when I was when I was growing up, Jackie Chan movies and getting them on video in this country was not always the easiest thing yeah you know, they were you know, until like like the, the late 90s when they were pumping them out on dvd you didn't get yeah. things like armor of god and winners and sinners and and, and and those kind of those kind of like 80s jackie chan movies they didn't really it felt like they were tricky to get hold of i remember armor yeah. of god being one of those ones where i need to see armor of god it's the one where jackie chan nearly died you know those and being very disappointed when i watched it <laughs> falls off a wall doesn't it it's like okay but he's, he does then put that footage in the end credits as well. So Yeah, which yeah. apparently, I was reading, he apparently got the idea of that from the Cannonball Run series. Yeah. Appearing in those, and he loved the fact that they put all the outtakes on there, so he did it after that in all of his movies. Yeah, but rather than Burt Reynolds flubbing his lines, it's Jackie Chan nearly killing himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Which is, you know, you work to your strengths, don't you? Well, supposedly that's also his way of warning children in the audience, don't try and copy Jackie, but... Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, yeah, but the, the other, I say, you mentioned it already, the Yuan Wu-Ping, um, massive influence on, I guess, on Western vision of martial arts movies. 
because yeah. of his choreography in The Matrix. Again, another film, I remember him being a big hit for him was Iron Monkey in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. That was Donnie one of those ones yeah. where it was like, oh, my God, you got to see that. Yeah, I remember this long time since I saw that. I still remember an amazing sequence where they're kind of fighting on these poles, like mm. a courtyard full of poles, and they can't touch the ground and may even be fire beneath the poles, if I'm remembering right. And there's kind of a whole 10-minute fight sequence constructed with them leaping on tiptoes between these poles and stuff like that. That's that have been good martial arts films made in the West, but kind of like you can see that Hong Kong's been at it for 40, 50 years and yeah, it's just yeah. ingrained in a different way. But Well, the ones that the ones yeah. that seem to have benefited from his choreography, uh, who I mean, like obviously he did Kill Bill as well. He did, he, I found he did, he did Kung Fu Hustle as well, choreography oh, for yeah. Kung Fu Hustle, which was, again, another big film forwarded the case of martial arts movies in, in the Western in Western world, I guess. Yeah, well, that one was interesting as well because it was kind of melding classic kung fu choreography with CGI special effects and kind of ma- pulling it off. There's a tradition there of peaking opera and everything, and there are just people who will, kind of like Jackie Chan spent his childhood in a peaking opera school, teaching him all these skills from when he was five or six, something yeah. like that. And just It's such ingrained in culture in a way that there's plenty of people in the west who do martial arts but there's not many of them who've been taught it full-time at school from the age of six and there's a whole kind of generations of stuntmen from hong kong who've come out of that tradition and maybe there's also a more willingness to take chances on sets in hong kong as well which does result in things like jackie chan nearly um, destroying his own skull, but also... Are, are you saying the health and safety is probably not as as, as a higher priority as it maybe on, on Hollywood pictures? Maybe not in the 70s. I, I want, maybe these days there's probably a bit different, but yeah. <laughs> there's uh, more willingness to, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump off there for you. Yeah, I'll fall off that. Well, talking about things that you probably probably can't get cleared by health and safety, let's move on to our next um, next one. What about Old Boy? We're talking about Vengeance Trilogy. Um, Pak Chan-wook's Vengeance Trilogy. Um, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy and Lady Vengeance. And um, things you couldn't do in Western movies. I guess Eating a Live Octopus is probably one of them up there. It's quite high. Yeah, and uh, the actor who did eat that live octopus apparently was a vegetarian Buddhist but and uh, uh, prayed for forgiveness to the octopus before each take. It's, that's the legend, anyway. These are the three films I've chosen for South Korea because South Korean cinema wasn't particularly prominent internationally up until maybe the late 90s and then suddenly it had an explosion. And um, there was probably the first one um, was a film called Shiri, which is a late 90s spy thriller, which did quite well and managed to did really well at home in South Korea, but then also snuck out onto a few international markets in a way that not many South Korean films had before. And then suddenly there was a bit of a boom. And um, Park Chan-wook, the director of these Vengeance Trilogy, was kind of at the forefront of that. First with a film he made in the year 2000 called um, Joint Security Area, which is a thriller set on the border between North and South Korea. And it's kind of about these South Korean soldiers and North Korean soldiers who um, meet in the middle. And, and it sounds cheesy. It's a very cheesy plot when you say it out loud. Kind of realise they're not so different after all. But then, of course, it gets a bit more complicated than that. And um, that was a huge hit in South Korea. I think it might have been the biggest box office hit in South Korea up to that point. And then he was kind of able to pull off this trilogy and made three films in in five years, starting with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, which 
it's a really complicated plot to this film, but I'll try and do a quick setup for it. So, um, deaf mute factory worker Ryu has recently lost his job and, and had need of a kidney transplant. Deceived, penniless, and utterly helpless, he seeks a way out of his situation by kidna kidnapping sorry, his former boss's young daughter. Of course, this being a film and a kidnapping, things do not go to plan. And Ryu soon finds himself trapped in a downward spiral of violence and bloodshed when Park Don Jing, the pain father of the missing girl, begins a hunt for retribution. And I think this is a really interesting take on the vengeance thriller in that kind of there's not really a good guy and a bad guy. Um, pretty quickly in the film you kind of say, oh, they've kind of got valid reasons to be I mean, they're both doing horrible things, but you can kind of see why they're doing it. No one's neither of them's out and out evil in a way that maybe if this was a Hollywood film, you'd have a clear, clear demarcation between good guy and bad guy. So you kind of flip this film flip-flops between the two of them as they kind of develop this little dance around each other as they kind of work their way towards each other over the two hours of the film. And it's a really well done film, I think. The, t the plot goes in some really unexpected directions. There's stuff in it that you've never seen in a film before. Because um, one of the lead characters is a deaf mute, there's a sex scene where him and his girlfriend are having sex but communicating through sign language during it, which is a scene I've never seen before or after, and things like that. And this should say that the the lead performances are great. Uh, Ryu's played by a, an actor called, I'm going to murder this as well, Hakyun Shin, who has had quite a, he's famous in South Korea, he's had quite a big career in South Korean cinema. But um, the other character, Park, um, the father of the kidnapped girl, is played by Song Kang-ho, who's probably now the most famous South Korean actor in the world after Parasite last year, in which he played the father of the, the family that moves into the rich person's people's home. And he's, have kind of gone from strength to strength for the last 20 years since this film because he's been in nearly all of Bong Joon-ho's films like Host and uh, Memories of Murder. He's in Snowpiercer, John Bong Joon-ho's English language film. And he, he's brilliant in it as well. There's a scene in this film where it's not really a spoiler because it happens quite early in the film. The, the daughter, his daughter does end up dying in, because of this botched kidnapping. And um, he's required to attend his daughter's autopsy. And the whole scene's just played on his face. You don't see any blood, gore, anything. You just see his father watching his daughter go through an autopsy. And he plays this two-minute unbroken shot, something like that. And you just see it all play out on his face. And it's absolutely stunning, kind of horrifying at the same time. Yeah, so what do you think of this film, Adam? Well, I saw it on release. I saw it and I was fortunate to be working at Metro Cinema in Derby when this was released. And all three of those played... Uh, on the on the big screen, this one being the smallest, I guess, of those releases, didn't really didn't really land that well. It obviously landed critically. I don't think it landed commercially in the, in the UK. Yeah. I mean, Old Boy was a much much easier sell, I guess. Yeah, Old Boy's got a bit more pizzazz to it. It's a bit. Well, like you, you've just done, yeah. you've just done the description of the plot there, and yeah. it's quite convoluted tricky yeah. to describe in a, in, a, in a nice handy soundbite whereas old boy it's like whack on a bat of a postcard you, off you go you know you know what you know where you're going with. old boy's interesting because it has got it's got an incredibly complex plot by the by the time the thing's up but you can say what it's about in two sentences at the same time exactly so, yeah no, that's yeah exactly and i think that's what i think that's what made that one a bit even a, a much easier sell when that was released uh, a couple of years later and old boy as well has kind of got a bit more of the kind of out 
overt directorial flourishes to it, kind of things like the famous hallway fight where it just follows him as he works his way through all these henchmen along a corridor over five minutes and kind of a bit more of a directorial show-offy film. In the, um. I think the thing I remember most from Sympathy of Mr. Vengeance was just, just the idea of organ transplants and people being kidnapped and harvested for their, for their organs. Yeah been such a weird thing I hadn't even thought about at all before I went into that movie and it's such a, a cool unique idea for a plot that really stood out for me yeah the fact that Ryu go he because he's so hard for up for money he goes he actually signs up to be have an organ taken for cash yeah. and then he gets ripped off so yeah. not only is an organ down he's He's, he's not got the cash for it. It was, it was yeah. that thing where it's dumped in a warehouse, like with like a, a sewn up organ missing from his, you know, his, his liver yeah. or something like his, uh, his kidneys uh, have been taken. Uh, that was quite an interesting world that it gave us a little insight into. Um, so yeah, that's what stood out for me from first watching it. And re- revisiting it, it's, it's, it's lost none of its power, I think. I think it's one of those unique films where it feels like, it feels like the first step towards Parasite winning the Oscar, yeah, in a weird way, and it's like in, in that yes, Shiri and people things like that, and JSA had come over and, and had a hit, but this felt like the first one that was gaining like Cannes awards kind of thing. The directors were being talked about at the high-profile festivals, and yeah, yeah things like that. Yeah, and that's obviously gone through now all the way to like this year with Parasite winning yeah. the Oscar, you know. And I suppose Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance probably is the most art house of the three in that it's got, there's barely any music in it. It's all played, to, the soundtrack's all diegetic, not to get too film studies about it. It's, the, it's yeah. just the sound you would hear if you were in the room when that was happening. There's not things like Old Boys filled with music and so is Lady mm. Vengeance. And it's kind of once, I guess, I guess once Park Chandler realised, oh, there is an international audience for this film, it's kind of just become a little bit more Hollywood. Not in a bad way, but in just in a way where they're doing using things like music and slight like visual lushness in a way that um, is missing from. I think I think one of the things that led to that was like it wasn't he was making these films and I guess I guess a lot of South Korean filmmakers were making these films in the same way as Chinese filmmakers, Japan filmmakers made these films for festivals. Yeah. They were making them with the idea that, well, we'll do all right in South Korea and then they'll play the, the festivals around the world and then that'll be it. And then you suddenly had this boom in the late 90s where uh, they were being put out on, on DVD and flying off the shelves. You know, it's yeah. just like, and actually, we, we can actually make, we, there's actually another audience for these films than just the art yeah. artists. There is a mainstream audience in the West that want to see. Toss and Asia Extreme, yeah. Yeah, Tartan Video was, every month they were releasing another. Bringing so much stuff over, it's kind of, compared to, it's a shame, because that was a boom, because it kind of, you still get some films from Asia released, but not, not many are making it into cinemas, and, and it, the things sneak out onto VOD, and you don't even hear about them, and then you have to search. There's much more on the consumer to find this stuff, rather than it being presented to you. And I, I remember um, growing up, late 90s, um, late teens, early 20s. And I could go to the multiplex and they'd have one screen showing something a bit weird. So it would be something like Old Boy or Audition or something like that. And those films would not play multiplexes these days. 
Well, possibly not, but with the pandemic hitting, <laughs> that, that might change, you know what I mean? You might start seeing some more unusual things playing at multiplexes than you would normally. So, But, oh boy, one thing it does have is Troy Sick in the lead role, who's kind of amazing, just the fierceness of him in that role, and just, like I, like I said, a vegetarian Buddhist, but he throws himself into it to the point that he's willing to eat an octopus live on screen. He's, he's an interesting actor because he doesn't actually work that much. I was looking at his credits and he's done about a film a year for the last 20 years. So he's only made kind of 20 films. Where off the back of Old Boy, he could have, if he'd wanted to learn some English, he could have gone to Hollywood and played villains as much yeah. as he wanted, really. He, he was a villain in the Luke Besson Lucy film, which I guess yeah. is made in France. And he speaks South Korean only in that. And that's the only time he's ventured outside South Korea. But, and he's done some great stuff as well, but kind of like old boy's going to be the film. When, when he dies, hopefully not for a long time, that'll be the top of his uh, obituary. It'll be old boy well, actor, Troy Vincent. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, as it will with most of the people involved with that movie, I think even yeah. the directing, I don't think the director, yeah. has the director done anything as big, as, uh, as, as, as impactful as old boy since then? He's, he's done quite a lot of great stuff. but He's done a lot of great films, but nothing that's quite kind of, I think, reached a mainstream consciousness in the same way i mean the hand the handmaiden was a couple of years ago wasn't it that did really well at the uk box office but again i don't think that's gonna <laughs> i don't think people are gonna say that's gonna be the second one after old boy um, and and lady vengeance as well um is i kind of how do you feel about it? i feel it's the worst of the three yeah people say that i really like lady vengeance and i don't know i don't know maybe it's just i i, I am attracted to the underdog and um, <laughs> it's had so many people talk about it. It's like, well, it's not. It's, it's the, the least of the three. So I stand yeah. up for it. But yeah, I think but... it's. I think it's, it's. I think with its focus on uh, on on female vengeance, yes, rather than the very male dominated first two, it adds something different to the, the oh, thematic yeah. trilogy. I'm by no means saying it's a bad film. It's kind of like I feel. I'd say Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance is a nine out of ten. Old Boys an eight out of ten. Lady Vengeance is a seven out of ten. It's still a Fantastically entertaining film, really stylish, great performances. Choyman Six back in it again, but he's the villain this time, and he's complete kind of antithesis of his character in Old Boy as well. Kind of, an, he's the villain, but he's also kind of almost pitiful, despite being kind of pure evil at the same time, playing this teacher who's doing terrible things to his pupils. I think he's got a great lead character as well. I'm going to struggle with this name, but it's Lee Young Ai. I think that's how you say it playing the Lady Dimensions of the title. I think she's great in it and um, kind of got this steel to her. It's quite interesting as well. It's kind of um, consciously kind of a capper to the trilogy because the direct Park Chan-wook's kind of doing little callbacks to things in the first two films. Actors from the first two films will just turn up for a very brief cameo. They're not significant roles. He could cast anyone in there, but no, he's casting Song Kang-ho in a one scene part and things like that so he knows people are going to be watching it going oh yeah that's the that's the guy from the first film sort of thing so yeah. it's, it's also Lady Ventures has also got a very interesting thing that he's it's got a director's cut version which is exactly the same as the original version in terms of the editing the film is exactly the same length all the scenes are exactly the same but he's changed the, the colours over the course of the say two hours and a bit of the film, the colour slowly drains out of the film to the point that you barely notice it to begin with. But by the time the final scene of the film, it's in black and white. It's kind of a thematic thing to maybe show the kind of 
the, the descent of the main character, maybe. Let's move on from Lady Vengeance and uh, the Vengeance trilogy that's opened up the world to South Korean cinema. And yeah. we'll move on to another film that opened up the world to anime cinema, I guess. So we're going to go into Japanese anime and we're going to look at Akira. Yeah, I should preface this by saying I'm by no, I do love Asian cinema and probably know more about it than a lot of people, but I'm by no means an expert in anime. There's a lot of anime films I like, but I'm very aware that there's anime fans who they like anime and that's their thing. And they, they whilst they watch a lot of Japanese content, that is all, it's anime is 99.9% of it. And so I like a lot of anime, but not to that extreme sort of thing. So I'm sure I'm always very wary when I'm introducing an anime at Quad that there's going to be people in the audience who know more about it than me because people who love anime really love anime. But Akira, I guess Akira is one of those ones where it kind of transcends the genre of anime in some ways in that it's not just an anime, is it? It's a, a, a huge film that went worldwide, opened up the world to the idea of, I guess, definitely the UK, the idea of animation for adults uh, which i don't think have been around before not in the same way i think the is an interesting one because it is definitely a anime landmark but it's also kind of from 1987 so 30 years later it's now also a sci-fi and cyberpunk landmark where people it'll mm. just get references and conversations about sci-fi and cyberpunk the fact that it's animated the fact that it's japan is kind of secondary to some people yeah yeah well, the, the, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of people talk about it as as one of the cornerstones of cyberpunk with Blade Runner and um, Neuromancer by William Gibson, the novel. Yeah. So it, it's one of those ones where it's like cross cross genres, cross platforms, cross um, media. I guess if you're interested in Asian cinema, you definitely are aware of Akira and have seen it and know what it's about. But do you want me to do a little? It's a hard one to summarise briefly. Well, yeah, it's not it's not entirely successful in its own plot, is it? So, <laughs> I know. So I'll go for um, this. It's in 2019. Canada is a, a bike gang leader whose close friend Tetsu has become involved in a government secret project aiming to produce psychic powers in its subjects. Aiming to save Tetsu, Canada runs into a group of anti-government activists, greedy politicians, irresponsible scientists, and a powerful military leader. The confrontation sparks off Tetsu's supernatural powers, leading to bloody death, and the final battle in the Olympic Stadium where Akira's secrets were buried 30 years ago. Akira being the first child that the government attempted to do these experiments on to produce ESP-type powers in them. You say it's not successful in its own plot, because what's interesting about this, this is by uh, writer-director Katsuhiro Otomo, who also wrote and drew the original manga that it's based on. But he actually stopped doing the manga for a couple of years to make the film. The manga was not complete at the point that the film was made. And the manga, now it is, he did go back and finish it afterwards, and it's about 2,000 pages. So you'd need probably six or eight hours to tell that story. So he kind of remixes it in a weird way. So he takes the main characters, he takes a lot of the thematics and plot elements, but it creates an entirely new story with them. I have read the manga, not for quite a long time, but in the film, Akira, this child from this ethereal presence that just kind of is just off slightly out of view through most of the film and is talked about in hushed whispers, but he's an active, active participant in the manga, in, in the film, is not. Quite clever how Otomo, he, gives characters from the manga who are kind of significant characters with storylines and things, they'll just pop up for a scene. And in the same way in Lady Vengeance, he'll put the actors in from the previous films, Otomo's dropping things in for people who've read the manga to go, oh yeah, that's the leader of the cult from the manga. 
and the cult's not in the film at all, but you'll see in this one sequence where you see this weird chanting lady with a weird hat on and she's from the manga and things like that. I don't know, this film's kind of got a lot of iconic visuals in it as well, which I think... Well, I think, is... that's, I think that's one of the things it's successful, it's massively successful in, is, it, is that it just feels huge. You know, it just feels like, I mean, that's what I'm, that's, I'm a big fan of like, the hand-drawn animation. And and this one just is 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 the perfect example of why hand drawn animation is amazing. Here you go. Look at these. Look at this wonderful sprawling set uh, that that's that's on on screen in front of you now. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful animated movie. You kind of get the sense of that it's like weird kinetic energy in this movie, yeah. and you get that. That's like you do that thing with the bikes where they like leave a trail of color. As they're speeding through, the, little things like that where you don't get that in live action, you, you wouldn't get that in live action. But you, in, in animation, it just boom, lifts everything and makes it feel wonderful. You know, it's got so many sequences that are just wonderful in that, like as an animation showcase, I guess. In the same way, like that opening bike chase is about three, mm. four minutes long, where they're just speeding through Neo Tokyo, as they call it. The two bike gangs battling each other, and there's so much stuff in there where you just the amount of work that's gone into it is amazing, kind of boggling. And I think it was, it's amazing in terms of, I think it was the most expensive anime produced up until that point. Yeah, I think Kiki's Delivery Service topped it the next year, didn't it? Yeah, but, uh... but Kiki's Delivery Service is kind of a, a family film aimed by an established director who's kind of one of the leading animation directors in the world. Kira's made by an animation sort of novice working off his own material. It's kind of amazing that he they, they he was able they were able to raise such a budget for this kind. Of, it's very adult in its subjects. There's a very violent in places. There's a little bit of nudity, and it's kind of like they're able to they were to make the most expensive animated film ever in the West. It would not be a hugely violent adult oriented orientated film it would be a pixar film or something like that it's, it's that's what I, one of the things i do like about um anime is that they are willing to explore not exclusively but mostly would be avoided in western animated film well that's one of the things that the, the boom of sort of like anime in the uk we tended to get a lot of that kind of stuff the, the, you know the, the manga uk label that were bringing over uh, animes to the uk on video they tended to go for the adult stuff. They tended yeah, to they go were... for uh, Ninja Scroll and um, Ghost in the Shell. And, yeah. um... Very canny, introducing it as kind of a new thing and making it cool. Yeah. I guess it kind of was late 90, 80s into the 90s. And I remember very much when I was kind of 11, 12, being aware of it as tapes being passed around at school, things that we probably weren't strictly old enough to be watching, but it was yeah. cool. I think they did a really good job at kind of making it something new and different and not your usual kids' cartoons sort of No, thing. I, I, but it's one of those things where they did such a good job of it that when Studio Ghibli started to try and break yeah. the market, they were having trouble because we, we thought of... The UK generally thought of anime as adult. Yeah, definitely. Kind of took until, I guess, 2000 or so was spirited away for, for a big family-oriented anime films have an impact. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they had had a little bit of groundwork with Princess Mononoke and Neil Gaiman doing the English translation. Yeah. Kind of brought it to the attention of some people that were watching anime, but not particularly would have been interested in this, but they wouldn't work. Princess Mononoke is quite a good middle ground, I guess, because it's got the cute cute creatures and stuff, but at the same time, it's still... um, quite a, some quite strong violence in it I mm. remember the characters get their arms chopped off and things like that which probably you wouldn't necessarily be showing to a 
six year old but and it's and it's quite adult in terms of its uh, themes and stuff because princess mononoke is another film where there's no real bad guy no it's quite complex plotting in that way where tension is required it's not like yeah. a film where you can sit it down and let it wash over you you've got to be engaged throughout otherwise you'll be lost within 10 15 minutes yeah and that's that boom of sort of like uh studio ghibli around spirited away and the barbican did a tour of the uk where they played all the studio ghibli films yeah they went on a bit mini tour in the late 90s early 2000s yeah i think that's i the first one I saw was Porco Rosso at Sheffield Showroom. It must have been that tour, yeah. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. And then uh, late 90s, um, a lot, all the films were coming out on DVD in Hong Kong, as it's Hong Kong, a British territory at that point. They all had English subtitles, so I imported yeah. all of them around there. There was a period where I was going around making everyone watch My Neighbour Totoro. Yeah. As you should, as it's one of those one of those rites of passage. When you see that, you pass it on, and you tell everyone you know what a great movie My Neighbour Totoro is. So that's that's the law yeah. isn't it so yeah <laughs> cool okay so let's move on to let's move on to our final uh we've left this one to the end but it's a relatively new film one cut one cut of the dead for people who are listening to this podcast now we are going to discuss the entirety of the plot so if you haven't seen this film now's the time to say goodbye um we will catch up with you on the next podcast um, i hope you enjoyed listening to this no, and well, we will see you again to, soon we- they should go and watch One Cut of the Dead and then come back and listen to the rest because sure, it's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> film and it, they will benefit from seeing it. So Yeah, it's one of those ones where, where when you suggested it, because I, I, I watched it this weekend for the first time, I had, I'd, I'd avoided the, the spoilers for this film, amazingly. I don't quite know how we would have discussed it without having revealing the spoilers, basically, because yeah. it's a very... I don't think we'll be doing the film justice yeah, because I showed this at the toy screen and I had managed to see a screener before and I'd loved it and I knew an audience was going to love it. But actually finding a way to communicate that to them without spoiling it is hugely difficult because it's a film that so much of an effect comes from kind of uh, kind of the peeling of the onion as the film goes on where layers upon layers upon layers and they cast light on what you've already seen before and make you think about things in a new way and it's incredibly cleverly constructed film in that way do you want to explain the plot then Peter? okay people have already seen it people have already seen it so it's kind of a film told from in three sections so the opening section is a 37 minutes i believe non-stop one take sequence with a mobile camera following the characters in and out and um, it's set in a rundown water plant where a small film crew is making a zero-budget zombie movie, reportedly have been the site of military experiments in the past. And this seems to be confirmed when real-life zombies appear and attack the crew. So that's part one. And then part two, it goes back in time, and we see the director of that film being commissioned to make his zombie film. And it becomes, we get about half an hour, something like that, of seeing his preparations to shoot his zombie film his troubles with the various actors and his family, family troubles at the same time because um, his daughter and wife become involved for various plot reasons. Then part three is where it all kind of neatly fits together and we see part one again, but from the behind the scenes perspective. And so all these things that happen in part one where you're, you are basically saying, that's a bit weird, why is that happening? you discover it's because of all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes in the making of this film. And it's so cleverly done. Uh, it's, it's a lot of big laughs in this film, I'd say. 
yeah did you enjoy it in that way adam i did i mean it it, it kind of like i say i went in there expecting a zombie movie and it it almost immediately became one of my top five films about filmmaking movies yeah and it's like actually this is not a zombie movie at all it's 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 got nothing to do with zombies really it's like citizen kane's about newspapers it's like no yeah. it's that kind of thing it's like it is the citizen kane of movie making movies yeah it's like uh, anyone i know that's had a go at making films on a low budget level I recommend this film because I know they will be able to relate in so oh, many ways. It's just, it, it is so yeah. many laughs and so many painful like reminders of things that people you go through on set, dealing with actors, dealing with set designers, dealing with plot points, dealing with script editors, all of that kind of thing. And also dealing with those like troubleshooting moments where something's gone wrong, we need to fix it right now. And they fix it. And it, it's one of those wonderful, heartwarming innovative yeah encapsulates the movie making experience where it shows all the troubles and it shows the the, the, the difficult reactors difficult but you do feel for the crew and, and that's that sense of the crew being a unified yeah it's kind of warming family kind of thing really comes together a common goal and all coming together at the end to make this goal of making a quite bad zombie movie yeah and and then comes together symbolically at the end with them on the little human pyramid yeah and it's kind of it becomes you're fully on you want them to succeed making this quite bad zombie movie that it becomes a noble goal throughout the yeah. course of this you're fully supporting them and it's, it's and the family stuff in it works really well as well with, it, with this director character he's got a daughter who wants to work in film as well and he's kind of sort of wants to support her but at the same time he's focused on his project and he's trying to keep her at arm's length because she's a distraction but then she's kind of the one who comes through and saves the day in the end. And it's actually creeps up on you as quite a moving film in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the one thing that's, that, that I didn't like as much was the mother character's sort of like method acting immersion. Um, I thought that was, really? a, it was funny. It was funny, but it didn't feel, it felt sitcom funny rather than real life funny. Yeah, it's, it's probably not the most believable element of the film, but it made me laugh. And just the, it did, yeah, it did, did, yeah. The shouting pom. Is guaranteed to make me laugh now. <laughs> and um, are you aware there's a sequel to this film, Adam? I, I, I did, I did know that, but now after having now seen it, I'm not quite sure how, why, why I guess more than how, why they've done a sequel. Well, it is it's a half hour thing that the director did earlier this year when lockdown hit, and he basically oh, decided, right. what can I do with the resources available to us from lockdown? as kind of a morale raising exercise for him and his friends in the casting crew as well as the people who have loved one cut of the head so he basically i think he wrote a script in a day sent it to all his casting crew and they filmed stuff on phone film themselves on phones and using things like zoom and he's edited it all together and just put it on youtube oh wow it's free um it's called the there's, there's an english subtitle version now as well called one cut of the dead Rem- mission remotes and it's not on the same level as One Cut of the Dead, but it's a fun half hour. It's definitely worth seeking out if you've enjoyed One Cut of the Dead because it's just nice to see the characters again, if nothing else. Because yeah. by the end of One Cut of the Dead, you're really fond of this little crew. So, yeah, so I'd recommend people go and find that on YouTube. Yeah, it, do, it does nail that film, Greg and crew, and it also nails the fact that movies are made fairly similarly all around the world. You know? yeah. They're the same problems on a Japanese set as the same problems on a US set, a UK set, a French set. It's all, it's a great leveller in that respect. 
different films, there's no difference. Yeah, I think that's been reflected in the success of this film as, as well, because it was a, I think the budget they, is quoted as being the equivalent of about $25,000, which is, right. that's, that's nothing at all. Um, that's not a day shooting on most films. So um, yeah. they shot in eight days. They're pretty much all non-professionals. I think the director had done a few shorts and stuff before, but he was basically funding this himself. And the fact that it's gone on to play around the world, I think it made is quoted as it's now made a thousand times its budget back. The most profitable film in history overtaking the Blair Witch Project. It just shows that there is ingenuity. People say it's all been done, but there are people out there finding ingenious ways to do new things and cheaply as well. Yeah, is, absolutely. Yeah. So what's next for the director, Shinichiro Ueda? Uh, I believe he's uh, he had co-directed a film the year after this that uh, I've read a couple of reviews and it's not got very good reviews. It doesn't seem to have left Japan. Right. So I don't know. Um, it's one of those, will, he be, will it be the one? Like Blair Witch Project is probably a good equivalent because the directors of that have kept working, but they've never quite impinged on the consciousness no. in the same way. And, um, but th- th- this movie yeah. is so cleverly written. You, yeah. you think you, you can't just have that one in your, your back catalogue. You, you can't, you know, you've got to have more because this, this is so clever. That you think, well, this guy's got to have more talent to show. Or is it kind of like with bands when there's second album syndrome, where bands have put out the first album, which they've had a lifetime to write and prepare for and work on, and then they're told, right, you've got a year to do the next one, and the second one's terrible because they don't have a year. So is it going to be that? I don't know. I hope not, because this film, he deserves part to be spoken of as a major Asian filmmaker just off the basis of this, I think, because it's so clever. Like I said, to the point where there's got to be more from this guy because it's just so clever. And not just clever, so, like you say, you care about those characters and that's through the acting and through the direction that you end up bonding with those characters in that second act. Yeah. And then third act comes in when they're redoing the movie. You you want them, like I say, you're on board. You want them to succeed in making this crappy little zombie movie. (laughs) You know, you just do. So to have that level of skill to craft that in the script and in the direction. Yeah. And it's got to be more. Yeah. Well, he's not short of ambition, I guess. So I'm sure they will be doing something because even attempting to make a film on that such a low budget where third of the film is done in one shot is pretty ambitious. Well, that's, that's what we've, we've done five films there, Peter. We've kind of cheated with the Vengeance trilogy and added another two. Is there any other films that you would want to highlight as, um, as reasons to embrace East Asian cinema? Loads. This is very difficult. <laughs> just narrowing it down just to a few to talk about on it was actually pretty difficult. I nearly chose a film called Love Exposure, which is a Japanese film from 2008 which is probably my favourite film in the 21st century so far. It's a four-hour drama about love, religion, cults, cross-dressing, evil versus good. Everything, it's all in one film. It's, it's, I tell people it's a four-hour film, and I, that is off-putting, I get that. But you can watch it as kind of a mini-series. On, if you were to stream this film, it's all divided up into chapters. So each chapter's not more than an hour. So you can just pause at the chapter and come back the next day to watch some more. Well, you can, but, you know, like, the, the Irishman was, was long. True. And people watched that. So, you know, just, you know, stop being so frigging crap and get out of there and watch a four-hour movie. Yeah, and I, I, saw, I saw this film at the cinema at Leeds Film Festival, which must have been 2009 or 10, I guess. And that was a busy Hyde Park picture house, and it went down gangbusters throughout. It did, they did have an interval, but 
there was a palpable kind of excitement during this interval because people are loving it so much. It's such a vibrant film, got great performances. It goes in all sorts of directions that you won't see coming. And that's one definitely to check out, I think. And then there's a thing, another one I really love is from, from a, I think it's from a year or two before that, is a, a Drift in Tokyo, which is kind of a much more, I'd describe it more as kind of a Japanese take on an American indie movie because it's about two characters basic plot is there's this slacker guy student who's heavily in debt and a yakuza debt collector comes to see him and basically says to him you've got 72 hours to pay this debt back or bad things are going to happen but kind of a set up for a sort of crime thriller in a weird way but then the the difference is when he returns 72 hours later and the, the student hasn't got any money this debt collector says to him okay actually i'll pay your debt off for you but for me to do that, you've got to do, there's one condition and that condition is you've got to join me as I go on a walk across. And then the rest of the film is just these two characters walking through Tokyo, kind of getting to know each other, encountering, it's a little bit episodic as they encounter various other characters that drop in and out. And it's, it goes in some really unexpected directions. It's, a, it's in a sim, similar way to One Cut of the Z, by the end of the film, you really care about these two guys and this Yakuza character who at the start of the film is just seems like a bit of a kind of a bruiser, not, not someone sympathetic at all. By the end of the film, you actually love this guy. <laughs> and um, the lead character um, is played by an actor called Joe Odegiri, who I really like, who's been in a lot of really great Japanese films. Um, it's kind of like before Disney swallowed Johnny Depp and ruined him with the Pirates of the Caribbean film, when Johnny Depp suddenly decided, oh, actually, I'll, I'm only going to make the films that pay me $30 million at this point, when Joe, Johnny Depp was doing interesting indies and playing believable humans. Joe Odegiri is kind of him, but for Japan, and he's maintained interest in playing interesting roles in indie films, low-budget stuff. So I'd really recommend people check out Adrift in Tokyo. For, it's kind of... There's no great high stakes to it. It's basically just two guys walking around. You get to see a side of Tokyo that's not often thought of when people think of Asian Japanese cinema. It's not no touristy stuff to it at all. It's literally just lots of little back streets and suburbs. Definitely worth seeking out. It's a very funny in a lot of places as well. Cool. Well, we'll call it a day on that there, Peter. You are running uh, monthly uh, Satori Screen Nights at uh, Quad in Derby uh, from when we reopen, I guess. Yeah. Hopefully. So, um, if you're working here in Derby or you want to travel to Derby, Pete will be here once a month showing the best in East Asian cinema and the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty broad spectrum, but always something interesting, I'd say, regardless of the actual objective quality of the film. Cool. Thank you very much for joining us, Pete, and we will speak to you soon. Take care. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Um, uh, we are here every every two weeks, so join us again in two weeks. Hopefully, we'll have Daryl back. We might even, fingers crossed, have seen Rebecca back from furlough, uh, so she hopefully will be rejoining the team uh, in the future. Um, other than that, we'll speak to you soon, and take care. Bye-bye.